Thank you, Peyton, and thank you to our worship team for leading us in response and to declare the excellencies of our God this morning. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church, and we're delighted that you're here. We say this all the time, but I want to say it again. We don't think it's an accident or a mere coincidence that you're here. We believe that God and his sovereignty and his granular involvement and engagement with the cosmos down to the personal individual level has guided your steps to be in this place by his grace. And so we believe, we hope, and we pray, and we've been preparing that God, through his word, by his spirit, among his people, would communicate with each of us. He would convey his truth and that we would leave this room changed. Now, as we get started this morning, I want to do something a little bit atypical, I want us to pause and, and, and to still whatever else, whatever thoughts, whatever ideas, frustrations, fears, uncertainties, doubts, whatever might be going on, and I just want us to pray together. So if you would just join me, you don't have to say anything, but I would ask that you would come in agreement with our time of prayer together, and then we're going to dive into God's word and see what he has for us. So let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can be gathered as your people in this place. Father, I would be naive to think that everyone walks in this room perfectly in fellowship with you and with one another. And so, Father, we want to pause and ask that you would reveal to our minds and our hearts that which might stand between any of us individually and you or us and you. You would reveal it to us. And you would give us the courage, the wisdom to release it, and that you would remove it from us by the finished work of your son, Jesus, at the cross. Father, in our thought life, where we have elevated self, in our conversations with those closest to us, in the meditations and musings of our hearts, where we have thought of others as less and tried to overly esteem ourselves, as we have acted with forms of lovelessness, of anger, or assault, or indifference. Father, all the ways that we are just simply not like your son, Jesus. We confess, as we already have, there is nothing good in any of us apart from the working of your son, Jesus, by the Spirit. So would you remove all of that and thereby make us ready, receptive vessels for your truth? God, you're worth that. Now help us, Father, to believe that, to trust that, and to live as though that were true. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. I wonder how you would respond, probably not out loud, but maybe just in the meditations and musings of your heart, if I asked you, how would you like to really please your God? How would you like to really and truly bring him honor? Now, don't be too quick to answer because you've been to church before. You're sitting in a church now, even though our church looks a little bit differently. My suspicion is that you would pretty quickly say, yes, of course I want to honor God. Sure, I'd like to, but really? Because it doesn't take long before we do a inventory of how we've spent the last several hours of this day, or how have we spent the last several days of this week. How much of that time 
was actually geared and optimized and organized around bringing honor to God. And I tell you this because I did some inventory this week. And I'm, I might not have a job by this time tomorrow because of what I'm about to say. I realize that a vast majority of my time is utterly godless. It's on autopilot. As I was praying about, planning on, preparing for this weekend's message, just praying like, Lord, show me what is it that I need to hear. And boy, did I. So much of my life goes on autopilot. I'm reminded of that wonderful Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote. He said, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. And that's bad for us. I'm reminded of St. Augustine some 1,600 years ago who wrote in book 8, chapter 7. He said, Lord God, make me pure and chaste, but not yet. Like, I want that, but I got some things I want to accomplish and experience and enjoy first. And that resonates with me. I get that. But I look at my days, and as we looked last week at Psalm 90, where Moses prayed for his people, teach us to number our days. Teach us to make our days count. And so this morning, the sermon title is simply called Time. Our big idea goes, it's time to honor the Lord. Now, it's never not time to honor the Lord, but I want to talk about that. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Haggai. Yeah, that's right. Haggai. It's in there. Why, oh, why are we in Haggai? Because we want to look at ancient truth for current challenges. I'm going to say that again. We want to look at ancient truth for current challenges. If you use your table of contents, that's three demerits. That's okay. There's grace for that. Go to Matthew, turn left. You're going to go three books back. There's Matthew, then you're going to go to Malachi, then there's Zechariah, and then there's Haggai. Before that is Zephaniah. So Haggai has this sort of, woo, you get to be the dude sandwiched between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And you're a minor prophet because you're less important. Not true, not true. Just less wordy. I would have been a major, not a minor, quite clearly. We need to talk about this guy named Haggai. Haggai, um, well, he's sort of a, he's a mystery. We don't know hardly anything about him at all. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning in Haggai chapter one, believe it or not, we're gonna do the entire first chapter, which is half of Haggai. And so I encourage you on your lunch break to read the other half of Haggai. You can do it in about four minutes or less. Haggai chapter one, verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Let me stop there. That's really strange. That's atypical and non-normative for how a minor prophet begins their oracle. They always explain who they are, where their hometown is, who their dad is, what their vocation was before God called them. We know nothing about Haggai, except that he has a really cool name that you don't hardly ever hear anyone naming their kids these days. You get some Zeke, you get some Dan, you get some Jeremiah, ain't nobody naming their kid Haggai right? You don't get much Gomer either. Have you ever thought about that? Like there's reasons for that. We don't know anything about this guy. He just shows up to preach. What would happen is God would have a king that would resemble or reflect the righteousness of God in the realm. And then when that didn't work, the high priest who would represent the people before God, well, he would minister and he would atone for the, the sin and the error of the people. But apparently even that was lacking. And so God has to send in a prophet. Yeah, 
The prophet's usually sort of a last-ditch effort, and we don't know anything about this guy because he's not the point. And so I say that with all humility. The preacher's not the point. The word of God and the heart and the mind of God is the point. That is, that is what we're here to do. Haggai shows up on the scene. Two chapters later, poof, he's gone. We don't know anything else about him. And yet the word of the Lord endures. We don't know anything about him. All we're told is that it is this very specific date. Listen to what it says here in chapter 1, verse 1. The second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day. Now, what's amazing is that is incredibly specific. When a prophet begins to minister and to write, they will always talk about it was the the first year in the third month of King Jehoiakim or, or wherever. But what this is telling us is there is no king in Israel. And so the only way to mark time is to mark time for the known empire, which at this point is the Persians, which is modern-day Iran. Let me give you a quick history lesson because it matters of how we got to this place. 1500 B.C.-ish, some 3,500 years ago, Moses leads the children of Israel. This non-nation, God says, now you are a nation. He makes a thing out of a no-thing because that's what God does. He leads these people through death, that is the Red Sea, and into life, into the promised land. And under Joshua, which we're going to begin our sermon series on the book of Joshua starting next Sunday, Lord willing, that'll take us all the way through May. Under Joshua, they are to go in and demonstrate the kingdom ethic and the aesthetic that Yahweh is their king. How'd they do? Is how the rest of the story goes there. And over and over again, they fail miserably until finally we do get a king in Israel. And his name is Saul. How did he do? You're going to hear a lot of that. And then we have David. Well, David's a man after God's own heart. How did he do? And he has a son named Solomon, the wisest man in the world ever. How did he do? That's a thousand wives, brah. Not such a good idea. That's a lot of bridal showers. And after Solomon, the kingdom splits. We've got the 10 northern tribes called Israel, the two southern tribes called Judah. In 722 BC, the Assyrians haul off the 10 northern tribes and Israel is dead. It's gone. It's scattered. In 605 BC, the Babylonians come in and in three successive uh, exiles, they haul off the two southern kingdoms and Judah is dead. There's nobody in the land. After 70 years in exile, the Babylonian Empire has been taken over. Now it's the Persian Empire. They are set free to return to the land. And the temple is in disrepair. The wall has been broken down. It's a laughing stock. But there is a a governor named Zerubbabel who's in the line of David. And there's a high priest named Joshua. And they lead the people back. And so we're at about the 500s BC. Now what's interesting is, Haggai tells us the second year of Darius the king and the sixth month on the first day of the month. That's amazing. That means we know exactly it was August 29th, 520 BC. 2,542 years ago and a week. Like very, very particular, precise specificity. August 29th, 520. Why do you care? Because that was a new moon. What that means is Israel would have been thronged with humanity because on New Moon, men, a festival, one of the feasts of Israel, all of the people were required to stream in. And they've come out of exile. They're back in the land. And God had told them, I want you to rebuild the wall. I want you to rebuild the house for me where I can have my people gather. And they went, yeah, look over there. 
and they got distracted. And so they've just been singing these psalms of ascent, like what Peyton just read, and watch what happens. It's August 29th, 520 B.C. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So Haggai's got a message for those two guys in particular, but it is to be uttered aloud so that all the people can hear what's going on. I want you to be there. I need you to travel with me. I need you to be in Israel. I want you to imagine all the sounds, all the sights, all the smells. The the nation is gathered together. Zerubbabel's trying to do his thing. Joshua the high priest is trying to do his thing. And this nobody from nowhere stands up and shouts. And God gives him voice. Because it's Dabar, Yahweh, the word of the Lord, and it sounds forth. Verse 2, thus says Yahweh of the hosts. It did not say, thus says 7.2 pound cute punk pink baby Jesus. doesn't say that. Thus says Yahweh, the, the commander of the armies of heaven. This is a term of sovereignty and of might and power. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now that's chilling. Did they really say that? Maybe a couple times they were on the street corners. Maybe they were in the barbershop chit-chatting about, you know, Jerusalem got beat by Jericho again. They're going to be better next year. Who knows what they were talking about? But either out loud, more than likely, the musings and the meditations of their hearts, God knew. Functionally, these people 2,500 years ago were saying God doesn't really engage. They were functionally deists. Oh, there is a God, but he's not really involved. He's not really intimately aware. He doesn't care. And God, this is always a bad day when he quotes your meditations back to you, and he's right. These people say it is not yet time to rebuild the house, to rebuild the house of the Lord. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. God says, I see my people. I again brought you from death out of Babylon into life, back into the land that, oh, by the way, I promised you. I promised Israel this will be your home. You defied me. You practiced idolatry. You didn't obey me. You didn't trust me. You never once observed the year of Jubilee or the 49 years of of rest. You never did it once. And so you had to go out of the land because you didn't trust God. You didn't think I was there. You didn't think I cared. And already they're only back in the land a few years, just a couple years, and they're already beginning to forget. Isn't that how we do? There is a gravity to our depravity. We choose to forget our God. Verse 3. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, there's a lot going on there. Haggai, speaking on behalf of God, uses a technical term. He says, your paneled houses. What's so wrong with having a paneled house? I mean, I get it. It's not the 1970s and the Brady Bunch is over, but paneling's not so bad, right? No, 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 no. There's a lot going on here. Way back in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, God says, when they come back into the land, he tells the priest Ezra, I want you to go to Lebanon, and I want you to harvest the cedars of Lebanon. I want you to make wood panel so that you can come and finish off the temple, put in the walls, put in the ceiling, make it beautiful. Go to Lebanon and get all the paneling, the safan, a very technical term for very high-end polished wood paneling. 
It's the same word here. God shows up to the prophet Haggai and goes, hey, uh, see, where, 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 where is all that paneling, by the way? And he's looking in their houses, and they're all shutting their doors, going, no, nothing to see here. I mean, it's kind of like, imagine Walt Disney comes to East Texas, and he says, I'm going to put in the third massive theme park, and I'm going to need all of your help. Every one of you is going to get a whole, like, uh, a whole scene, like the, the jungle ride, or the, the, it's a small world, whatever. You're all going to get there. Just hold it until it's time to build the Disney theme park, and then you're going to come out, and you're going to put in, you're going to install your portion of the theme park. And then Walt shows up, and he's like, wait a minute. Where's all this stuff? And he walks by your house. And you're like, whoa, there's nothing to see there. That's okay. You took the stuff that God said he wanted, and you put it in your own house. Oh, that's, that's, that's not okay. He took these fine pieces of paneling that God had directed them. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, and that's a technical term, that means the temple, while this house lies in ruins. Verse 5, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies of heaven, consider your ways. He'll say the exact same verse again in verse 7. It's a bookend because 6 is sort of the middle of the sandwich. Verse 5, this is what Yahweh the hosts of the hosts of the armies of heaven says, Consider your ways. It is literally set your hearts on your ways. Think about what you're thinking about. Hmm. Be mindful of your mindfulness. Be meditative on your meditations. What is the whir and the hum of your mind and your heart on autopilot? Remember how we started? What, what, what if you could actually bring honor to your God? It's interesting what God wants most, apparently, is to be honored. And that merely means being regularly and rightly recognized. It's what's best for us. He doesn't require all these deeds, all these acts of heroism and service. And all. No, he merely wants us to be regularly and rightly recognizing him because he knows that that will then produce the sort of service and acts that he desires. So, verse 5, consider your ways. Set your hearts on what you do and why you do it. It matters to God. Verse 6. I call this little verse, verse 6, Haggai 1, 6, the feudal five. And it's amazing. This is ancient truth, and it speaks directly to us 2,500 years later. The feudal five, the things that people for all human history have tried to do to achieve happiness, longevity, peace, fulfillment, and joy. Right here in one verse, verse six. You have sown much and harvested little. Hmm. You've tried to economically invest your goods and produce more goods, and surprise, it's not working for you. You're harvesting, but you're getting a, a lower return, and so you're taking more risks, and, and you're having to give the better seed to plant, and you're not able to eat enough, and so it goes badly for you. And then rather than recognize that you're not recognizing God, you take bigger risks, because if it's to be, it's up to me. So that's the first error of humankind is we try to take matters into our own hands and we try to better our own economic situation or that of our resources. If I'm plucking a nerve, <laughs> get in line. I've been doing it to myself all week long, all right? Verse six, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You can't ever 
get enough because all of your stocks are going to try to plant for next season and it's not going to work for you. You're actually working against God. Now that's terrifying. Listen to what he says here. You drink, but you never have your fill. Literally, you drink, but you never are able to get drunk. Now you would think, like, wait, God, that's a good thing, right? Well, yes, of course, God's not calling for people to get drunk. But what he's saying is, you have vineyards and you're making wine, but it's so bad, it doesn't even work for you. It's August 29th, 520 B.C. You're drinking an August 27th, 520 B.C. vintage. It's two days old. It just sort of tastes like Drano. Because that's all you can do. That's the best you can produce. You can't do it. You're working against me, he says. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Well, who cares about being warm? It's August 29th. No, no, no. At night, already, it begins to get cold in Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem. That's at 3,500 feet in elevation. They're not taking care of themselves because they can't, because they refuse to involve their God. But God's saying, it is time to honor the Lord. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. All of your efforts, all of your strivings are just running right out the back door. It's never going to work for you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Probably not angrily shaking your fist saying we will not have this God, but functionally there's no difference if we're never actually mindful and meditative on him. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Now, that shocks me. This is, this is the grace and the mercy of our God, that if our God was named Eric, it wouldn't go this way. The, the, the incredible grace that he's still calling to them, that he's still relating to them when they have functionally said, we will not have you. The old refrain had been, Israel goes to Babylon, they come out of exile, and they never practice idolatry again. Incorrect. They just dressed it up a bit. Their own success and their own wealth and their own resources were what they began to pursue godlessly. God does not say, shockingly, I want you to tear all that paneling back out of your houses and take it to the temple. He doesn't do it. It's what we expect. He doesn't even say go all the way back up to Lebanon. That would be hard and expensive. He doesn't even do that. Just go to the hills. You got the, the Shephelah and the, the Judean hills and the valley right outside of Jerusalem. There are trees there. Go get it from there. Now, that's an incredible grace. God's not trying to extract a pound of flesh. I think a lot of us think of him that way. No, it's amazing. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that is the temple, that I may take pleasure in it. Hmm. Do this because my pleasure should matter to you. And so that's the convicting question. Does God's pleasure matter to me? I know that it should. I know that it often doesn't. So if you're anything like me, I'm very, very sorry. His pleasure must matter to us. Go and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Apparently, interesting, the condition of the temple reveals our feelings of our God. Hmm. The condition of the temple reveals how we actually revere and honor and glorify 
our God. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Oh, God gets more particular, more precise. You were trying, you good little triers, bunch of little tryhards, but I went, and you had nothing. God will do that because he loves us so much. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. As God saying, you guys, you guys, it's not fair. I, I, I need an ottoman. Come on. Come on, please. I, I, I want some running water. No, 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 no. God wants the temple to be the demonstration and the showplace of his glory in the world so that all the nations can see who this God is and what he is like and what he loves. Verse 10, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. See, when there is a fracture, when there is a schism between man and God and man and man, even the created order is left to chaos. Let me say that again. When there is a problem, when we are out of fellowship, man and God and man and man, the created order actually suffers. This is why we say this all the time. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, such that even the created order feels and enjoys the reverberations of the gospel of grace. God says, when you are mindless of me, the whole created order goes into chaos. Have you turned on the news lately? Just, just look around. Okay. Verse 11. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now you might hear that and go, that's right. This world needs to go back to God. Maybe be very careful and very clear. This is the prophet Haggai talking to the covenant community, the messianic people of God, Israel. He's not talking to the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the what? Neites? No, no. He's talking to the people of God. Well, I don't know how you think this is going to go. Drum roll, please. Verse 12, how are these people, how are these leaders going to respond? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, at the Lord, their God, had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. <laughs> That's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. That the leadership, the Lord has installed, and the people of the Lord that he has placed respond to the word of the Lord. Not some musings of some preacher, not three points in a poem, but to the word of the Lord. They responded, and what's the payoff? They feared. They had awestruck wonder. This is not the fear that says, I'm going to die like a lion is behind me. It's not fear of predation. This is awestruck reverence and wonder. Why? Because the word of the Lord connected with them, and they began to remember that the honor and pleasure of the Lord is paramount. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord, with his, with his message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Did you see how quick that was? Like you would expect, now go to your room and think about what you've done. No. Yahweh just says, I'm with you. Oh, I've missed you. Why have you not been mindful? I've been right here all the time. I am with you. 
declares the Lord. So much so that in five centuries from that declaration, he will literally send his own son and he will name him, I am with you. Now, do you think of your God like that? And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day, isn't that cool? I mean, it took them 23 days. <laughs> when they finally got to work, it took them 23 days. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king of Persia. God said, I want your hearts to be inclined for my house, for the temple. It's time to honor the Lord. So what do we take away from this? How do we apply this? I think, I suspect, I don't know, some of you are sitting there and you're squirming and you're going, oh my gosh, for seriousness, this is because this this we're at the end of the capital campaign, isn't it? No, not talking about that at all. That said, if you were convicted for some reason and you haven't gotten involved, I want to invite you to do so. That's not what this text is about. I want to be super careful. I am not ever wanting or willing to take God's word and to make it say what I want it to say. I want to be super careful about that. Why are we teaching Haggai in the middle of the summer? Well, application or implication point one goes very simply like this. We are the temple of God. The book of Haggai was written to some people in Israel 2,500 years ago. Not written to us. It was written for us so that we could extract and understand what is our God like? What is our God love? What does he want for us? We are the actual temple. We, the people of the church, are the temple of God. He resides in us in this age. We, we are the showplace of the glory and the grace and the gospel of our God. How are we doing? I don't mean brown chairs and narrow rooms. I don't mean a 1949 Elks Lodge. That's not the temple, praise God. Oh, I'm saying it's us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, or do you not know that your body, that's singular, your individual body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You're walking around. It's you. You're the temple individually. You are that one from Exodus 3. You're the burning bush. It's you, the one in whom God dwells and is on fire, and yet you're not consumed. And people go, I will go and see this strange sight. It's you. That's why Paul will say elsewhere, we hold the very glory of God in these chamber pots. Yay! You're an earthen clay pot used for ignoble purposes that God chooses to dwell by the third member of the Godhead Trinity. You, individually, you are the temple of God. But there's more. He says in the same chapter Paul does in 2 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You individual, you're the temple. We collectively, as the messianic community, the people of God, we are the temple. And when the spirit of God who dwells in you and the spirit of God who dwells in you and the spirit of God who dwells in you, when we're all present and the same spirit teaches all, 
This is the temple of God. You can go on with other texts like 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 4. But what God wants is for us to honor him by curating and crafting and cultivating his house. I don't mean new wallpaper. I mean having a concern for him. I mean having a concern for him that I might not otherwise have anything to do. It's time to honor the Lord, and we do that by building the house. Now, sometimes that does involve creating open spaces at optimal times for more people to come and experience what we have enjoyed and experienced, of course. But principally, that leads me to the second point, and it goes like this. The people of the church must be our priority. The people of the church must be our priority. That means others, the one and others, over and over and over again in our New Testament. You see all the apostles and the, the writers of Scripture saying, it's about one another, one another. Stop marshalling all your resources for yourself. Do you not understand from the book of Haggai, which gets quoted a lot by the apostles, you're working against God. Wondering why you're flummoxed and frustrated. It's because God loves you too much to let you succeed. The people of the church have to be our priority. And it's so countercultural, and yet it's precisely what this world is so desperate for. You hear it increasingly with younger generations. I want community. I want community. I want to be known, and I want to know. The people of God, for the people of God, has to be our concern. Let me say it again. That does not mean we shun outsiders. No, ever. They matter to God until they matter to us. It means we love one another so well. We ask that God would do for them what he has done for us. And the best demonstration is they will know we are Christians by our love. I say this all the time. The vast majority of people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. And they do so because they see the community of faith and fellowship inside of the church. It's not enough to merely come to church and quote-unquote get fed I hope that happens, but that can't ever be all that happens. It must be a place where we know and we are known by one another. Third point goes like this. God's pleasure is our purpose. I tell you this week, sitting around praying, simmering in my own shame grease, just realizing I don't care about God's pleasure nearly enough. I'm more concerned of what will it take for me to feel better. And then I'm slapped back into coherence going, wait a second. Oh my goodness, am I that much of a usurper of God's sovereignty? And the answer is yes. Yes, yes I am. So you heard it here first. And yet when I do practice diligently, mindfully pursuing God's pleasure, I am enriched. I am full. I am experiencing joy. And I am, for the first time in that day, worth something to somebody else because it's God's pleasure that must be our purpose. The people of Haggai's day, they got used to the wreckage of the temple all around them. They didn't even, they didn't even scoff as they walked by it anymore. They were just glad they had paneling in their own houses. When we travel and we see old dying churches, even in our context, it seems normal, but it isn't. That's not okay. Apparently, God cares intensely about these living stones, what Peter says, fitting together and telling a story. What we find is that they support no weight well unless they fit well together. But when they do, God is so glorified and he takes great delight in people taking the time and energy to invest in others so that his house is built up. He's given us all the resources we need 
for one another, but our depravity sleeps in and sneaks in and wants it to spend it all on ourselves. And yet Jesus has rescued us from that calamitous downward spiral. And so it's time for we as a people, if I may be so bold to pastorally prescribe, it is time for us to honor the Lord in what we do. I'm not saying that we haven't been, but increasingly and more intentionally. As individuals and corporately, it's time for us to honor the Lord. The temple was torn down, but in three days, it was restored. And I'm talking about, of course, Jesus. And his Shekinah, his Shekinah glory now indwells us. God could not be closer in this age than he is right now. And Peter says in 2 Peter 1 that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness, that we may not merely panel our own houses with it. So that's, that's the, the, the visual cue I want us to all carry around. Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Am I paneling my house? And if you are actually paneling your house, you should probably modernize. But euphemistically, if you're, if you're just paneling your house and all of your activities, all of your maneuverings are so that you can, quote, panel your house. Pause. Maybe that's the right thing, but pause. Set your heart on your ways. Why am I doing what I am doing? Am I seeking fulfillment in this activity? It's never going to work. Set your heart on God's ways. So now indwelled by his spirit, we have the same mind as Jesus, and his mind is to build and bolster the body of Christ so that we will all be authentically known. So, church family, here we are, Labor Day weekend, about to head into a very busy fall semester. School's going on, work is back, and all these kinds of things. May this be the season, may this be the semester that we look back and say, that was the defining moment when we as a campus honored the Lord. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And Father, I do pray that you would continue to work through your word that was given through Haggai the prophet, and that these gathered would have heard a better sermon than what was just preached, and that your word would sound forth and not return void. So Father, would this not come across in any way as some sort of manipulation or persuasion, but simply a call and an invitation to the opportunity of being mindful of your goodness and your grace. And Father, if there's anyone here who just doesn't know you, is not known by you, would you move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus? Would you usher them out of darkness into light, out of death into life? And would they stand fully with all of their weight and all of their being on the truth that Jesus is the son of God? And he takes away their sin and he gives them the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. And with that redemption, Father, would you give them grace by the indwelling of your spirit to speak with someone they know or love or trust about that, that we would lead them in an increasingly growing relationship with your son, Jesus. Father, for the rest of us, would you remind us to not merely pursue the paneling of our houses, but to pursue your pleasure. It's good for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you have made this possible. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.